This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research, distributed by Inside HPC. Russia arms itself against x86. And yet more supercomputer lists. It's This Week in HPC. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thanks for dialing into another episode of This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. And, uh, Michael, we're, we're through ISC, but still finding a little bit of news. Yeah, there's some, uh, there's some news items floating around ISC. One of these we're going to talk about today actually came out before or right at the beginning of ISC, but just sort of uh, got lost in the shuffle there. So, yeah, we're sort of picking up the pieces here. Well, and this is going to be an interesting one, this story out of Russia, because of a couple of main themes we picked up at ISC, one of which was the emergence of 64-bit ARM as an architecture that people were starting to look at. And then as kind of a, a fun little item, we were welcoming back T-platforms and glad to see them as a major part of the discussion. And now what we're looking at is news coming out of Russia from a few sources that the Russian government wholesale is replacing x86 technology in all systems within the Russian national government with a custom chip based on ARM that's built by the Russians, Russian technology. Right, and the company that's involved here, like you said, is T-Platforms. It's actually a subsidiary uh, called Bacal Electronics, who's going to design and build this ARM64 chip and, and supply it to uh, presumably the Russian government agencies. So they're just starting this out. Uh, but there's that T-Platforms hook, which, which sort of points to the fact that these chips might eventually make it into supercomputer servers as well. It looks like the first chips will just go into PCs and maybe microservers, and then they'll, they'll probably work up from there. But I think they have definitely big things in mind for this, uh, this project. Yeah, we're trying to put together the details on this. These were news stories that came out of the Russian news agency, Commerçant, and as well as the, the news agency, ITARTAS. It's been covered in eWeek. It's been covered in Enterprise Tech, putting together these details. But uh, uh, you're looking at this wholly owned subsidiary underneath T-Platforms called Baikal, and it does say that we're looking at everything from the PCs up through high-performance computing system, so definitely an HPC tie-in directly, as the Russian government has its own HPC initiatives, but not limited to HPC, that uh, this is all being done to remove the reliance on the non-Russian x86 technology and replace it with technology that they feel they have more under their own control. Yeah, and I think we, we talked about that early on when we talked about some of the ARM chips, that this is the opportunity for not just other, other vendors, but other countries, other governments, to sort of get into the game much more easily than they otherwise would have been able to do, because much of the work is done for them. They just need uh, system designers and a fab to do this now, and, and sure enough, uh, you know, Russia sort of took the bait and thinks they can do this, and it looks all very doable. I mean, they're going to roll out the initial Bacal chips, they're calling them Bacal as well, in uh, early 2015, so it's a pretty short development cycle, and then the next generation uh, in the following year. 
a short development cycle, and it's building on this industry trend of we you know, looked at IBM is trying to reduce its reliance on x86 or has eliminated the reliance on x86 with within its own product lines, moving that out to Lenovo. Now we've got this major story on the end user side where you say the Russian government is going to walk away from x86. You wonder if this is something that other countries might emulate, in particular China, which we know has been developing its own domestic processor technologies. Could you know? Do you think, Michael, this could influence something China might do? Oh, I think easily it could. I mean, uh, China is actually has a, a, a couple of different directions it's going. It's got its indigenous chips with its own designs, but I think there's also some companies there that are giant onto the Open Power Consortium, so they might build power chips as well. And it's certainly conceivable that they will now build ARM chips uh, in, a, in addition to those. Meanwhile, this has to be a boost for T-Platforms itself, uh, coming back not only as a system company, but to be placing these processors throughout the Russian government. It, it must bolster their their own revenues internally, and as you pointed out, we could start seeing these Baikal chips potentially as processor options within the T-Platforms architecture. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it, it uh, probably will go to their bottom line. I think the, uh, the E-Week article pointed to this this project may be costing tens of of millions of dollars presumably and um, you know all supported by the, the government agencies and uh, state run tech companies there it starts feeling like Intel you know the the danger of being a monopoly is there's only one way to go from there right and we've seen Intel really build up its market share within HPC specifically within the server space generally and and that just makes you a target where everybody wants a piece of you. Yeah, exactly. And and with these new architectures coming around, ARM and, and some of the accelerator architectures, there's really a lot of opportunity here to, to diversify. And uh, I think uh, different vendors and uh, now countries are starting to take advantage of that. Okay, well, let's take a quick break. It's an interesting story there, but then we've got some other news to finish our wrap-up from ISC. We talked top 500, but there's a couple other lists we want to take a look at. So we'll be right back with more This Week in HPC. Hi, this is Rich from Inside HPC. You know, we run into Addison and Michael all the time at high-performance computing events around the globe. But we know how important these conferences are to you HPC users. If you have an HPC conference coming up, we invite you to add it to our Inside HPC events calendar. It's self-service, so it's super easy to get your conference noticed, and you can then fill up the seats. It's a good value, and did I mention that no salesman will call on you? Check it out at events.insidehpc.com. Okay, Michael, we're back in from our break. As I was saying, we covered the top 500 list while we were doing our live podcast from ISC, but let's take a look at some of the other lists that come out as part of this conference, starting with one that's getting more attention with every iteration with the Green 500. Right, the Green 500 list came out as well late in the the ISC uh, news cycle there, but... uh, there's a, a new list, and it's more or less uh, not too too far changed from the list before, though there was a little more volatility than we saw in the top 500. Um, I think the big story there is the top 17 spots are now accelerator-based systems. We knew from last 
the last was six months ago that I think the top 10 or 15 were accelerator-based, and they've extended that now. So we're seeing a lot of acceleration at the top of these lists, which is no surprise since those those uh, chips tend to be a lot more efficient than uh, your straight CPU chips. They're a lot more efficient on LINPAC, for sure, which is still right. the basis of Green 500. And if what you're counting is LINPAC performance per energy, what we're really seeing is that these uh, GPUs in particular, Xeon Phi's, the many core types of architectures do that very efficiently, and, and we're going to see that continue. But then you also found a geographic trend. Right, as well. I mean, the top 10 uh, of those top 10 systems, it looks like nine of those are from outside the U.S., so the one at the very bottom. The number 10 system, I think, is a financial institution based in the U.S. Um, but the top of the list in general is uh, very international. Um, so I, I don't know. You know. What do you make of that here? Why are all the internet? First of all, top 500 in general, it was pointed out to me, is now less than 50% U.S., which it hasn't been for quite a while, right. I think. And that's been part of the ongoing trend with the reduced government investment. We had a slowdown, shutdown in the U.S., and, and that goes with the general trend of just the North American market has continued to dwindle in, in percentage of overall HPC. It's still the largest geography, but right. it's falling and, back. And other countries. But I, there's probably more to it than that in terms of the geographical split with Green 500, right? Yeah, well, as you pointed out, but I think it's also other countries coming up to speed with, with HPC, so there's a little more diversity just because of, uh, of those uh, initiatives there. But with the Green 500, I, I think it sort of points to the fact that in, in countries outside the U.S. energy uh, power costs are especially more dear than they are inside the U.S. We have uh, slightly more energy resources. El electricity is relatively cheap compared to a lot of other nations, e even places like China where, it's, uh, where they have a lot of resources. It's, it's fairly expensive. So it's not a big surprise that there would be a little more experimentation in, in countries like Europe and Asia than there is in the U.S. to, to field these very efficient systems. And and even if there aren't production systems, to at least experiment with them. And I think that's that's a lot of what we're seeing. I think three of those top ten are in Japan. And, of course, we know uh, energy is quite expensive uh, on that island. Well, this is just a continuation of the theme of the gluttonous Americans. They'll just burn more coal, more oil, go out and have another bacon cheeseburger on a donut bun, right, and uh, and say everything's good, right? Everything's good. Yeah, I mean, even even though these these lists are are much better than they were when they started this about I think seven or eight years ago. I mean, even projecting out, I think we're still an order of magnitude or so away from what we want for exascale systems. I think uh, if we project even that top. Uh, Tsubami KFC systems were still in the hundreds of, uh, of uh, megawatts, uh, which is not something that's probably very practical for an exascale system. But, uh, you know, we've seen a good trend here. We are starting to cut down with these accelerators, and we might be on a better trajectory to get to that 20 or 30 megawatt level as we get to the exascale uh, supercomputing era. Yeah, I worry about looking at the different benchmarks there, though, in isolation. And I get that from a hardware standpoint, power consumption is the most difficult barrier in terms of achieving an exascale, and the accelerated systems start looking really good. But yep. really, I think from a practical standpoint, to have a productive exascale system, the larger challenge is going to be in software, application software and middleware. And you need to ask the question as to whether the these many core 
core uh, architectures at that level of scale are going to be the most efficient from a software perspective for a wide range of applications. Yeah, well, I think one thing in in the favor of the evolution of accelerators, I think they are going to be easier to program. They're going to be more integrated into the CPU one way or another. So the, the programming model, I think, by the time we come to the end of this decade, will be more comfortable than it is now. We, we won't have, I don't think, very many uh, the first Excel systems with these accelerators sitting off of a PCI bus like that. There will either be some virtual, virtual version of that, virtualized uh, interconnect, or actual integration in the silicon to, to ease that uh, sort of uh, memory discontinuity between the CPU and the, and the GPU, or whatever it is. Well, I partially agree with you, but that means I also partially disagree with you here. I think for the applications that have done well in parallel thus far, uh, biosciences, seismic, weather simulations, they'll continue to make programming advancements in order to take advantage of those with many core. But I really worry about other vertical markets like structural analysis, where we haven't seen them keep pace in terms of scalability just in the march toward petascale. Right. You know, the, the, these applications have not kept up in scalability, and sure. I'm not convinced that they're going to scale well in this kind of many core architecture. I, I think we're heading toward a, a, a diversification here where a lot of the market really can scale well here, but for, for the ones that can't, we're getting too far down the path, and they're going to need something architecturally a little bit different, a little more tailored to those applications. Well, sure, yeah. The, the overriding challenge is, is the number of threads these things want, whether you're talking about many core on the node or, or just the number of nodes. There's a lot more parallelism that's, that's coming with the, the exascale era, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's not going to be you know, a boatload of applications that are going to be able to scale that highly. So we are going to see even more of a, of a, of a dichotomy between the ones that can sort of ride that, that, uh, that parallelism up the, up the chain and ones that can't. So it, it, I think it's going to be an ongoing problem, and we see it now. I mean, there's, there's a handful of, of petascale-capable applications now, and the rest of them are using just portions of those systems and doing the best they can. Yep. This was a topic of conversation in my analyst crossfire panel at the end of the ISC conference, in particular with Yoon Ho from Rolls-Royce on the panel, very interested in getting his views on that. But it's also related to the fact that LINPAC has been criticized on an ongoing basis that it doesn't reflect a wide variety of different types of application scalability, and that leads us to the other list that we're seeing emerging now really for the first time at ISC. We're starting to get some results on the new high-performance conjugate gradient HPCG benchmark that might offer a complement to, to the top 500 in LINPAC. Right. We saw that list come out. There were a handful, at least, of, of, of entrants to that list. That's a more complicated set of benchmarks to run because there's more than one, uh, one benchmark. So uh, what they seem to do is sort of aggregate those together and index them and come up with this number. And, and they've come out with a list. And it's, it's a little bit different from the top 500 list, which is to be expected. 
Yeah, you're right. We do see a couple of differences there, and there was a presentation by Jack Tangara toward the end of ISC on Thursday where he revealed some of the higher scoring machines on this new HPCG benchmark. Uh, you can find uh, a slide in particular that got released on Twitter uh, through TwitPic and has been picked up by a couple of sites uh, getting a conversation going around this. But uh, at the top of the list, Tianhe 2, is still number one on both the uh, LINPAC, the traditional HPL rank, as well as the HPCG rank. But then underneath that, first of all, not every system, as we were saying, running the uh, the benchmark. For example, there's no Sequoia, which is a, a major system on, on LINPAC, but we're not seeing it there. Blue Waters, of course, hasn't run either one. But then we do see some shuffling. For example, the K computer, which is number four on LINPAC, is up ahead of Titan, which is number two on LINPAC. So uh, so those switch places when you go from LINPAC to HPCG. Well, even more interesting, you see the, that uh, a K system number two, which was number four, but when you look over at the uh, HPCG uh, petaflops rating, uh, even though their, their LINPAC petaflops were off by a factor of three from the Tenhe 2 to the K system, their HPCG rating is very close. It's in fact it's just I think point point one petaflops from the uh, from the top system there. So it, it really narrowed that uh, that difference down quite a bit, even though the, the peak and the and the and the limpact petaflops were very much different. So that's very interesting. That's interesting. Then we also see that relatively stampede, the, the Dell Intel Xeon Phi system from TAC, which is the number seven system on the top 500 list, relatively didn't do very well on HPCG in the sense that it gets outscored by SuperMuck from, uh, from LRZ, which is the number 12 system on the top 500. It gets outscored by Curie, the number 26 system on top 500, and, and a few others. Uh, so it could be an architectural thing. It could be a question of how they ran it. There was a yeah. there was a scaling issue there. There's an asterisk next to the uh, next to the next to the Dell score for uh, for the HPL. But uh, you know we can start to maybe make a couple of inferences that it looks like the, these Bull X systems. Bull is a seems to be a supporter here where you get a lot of the Bull X systems are running and and they're doing well. Can we start to extrapolate? There, but it's hard to make too many conclusions until we get a, a more populated list here. Yeah, and until some of the uh, the programming gets a little more refined as well. I mean, some of the problems here might be just related to implementation of, of the benchmarks themselves on these architectures. There's, there's quite a few architectures here. There's you know the Kepler, the Xeon Phi, the straight CPUs, uh, you know the Ks, and the, the Blue Gene Qs, and, and I think we've noticed you know even with uh, the Linpack that sort of the the longer you do that, the better you get at, at sort of squeezing out the performance from these different benchmarks. So I think we'll see that as well. What I hope we will see is, first of all, that, that there will be a difference between the two lists. Otherwise, if it's just going to be same, same,
time, then we're wasting everybody's time. Yeah. And then furthermore, once we start understanding what the differences are, that sites are willing to run both benchmarks and not just the one that they feel like they're going to do better on. You know, so we, we get these active comparisons back and forth. Otherwise, it's you're, you're going to have half the systems on one list and half the systems on the other list. Right. Well, I think these lists become a chicken and egg problem. You, you want to popularize the list, but somebody sort of has to go first, and then it gains its own momentum as people more people join the list, it becomes more uh, more coveted. So I think this is a good start. I think uh, you know we will see more people sort of run these next time, and and we'll see how these yep. fall out. But this is it's, it's a good start. There's already a BOF proposed for SC14, so hopefully we get more news on it uh, in New Orleans in November. Yeah, pretty good. All right. Terrific, Michael. We found some news to talk about after all. I uh, wish you a happy Independence Day here in the U.S., even though we're out of the World Cup. Belgium dashed our hopes. Yep. Yeah, they sure I, did. <laughs> Fourth of July will go on anyway, and then uh, we'll be back next week with another This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing, distributed by Inside HPC, news without noise for the high-performance computing professional. For more information, visit intersect360.com and insidehpc.com.